Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and I'm here with the new director of progress, lovely and shiny, it's Nathan Yole, who started very recently, last Monday. Um, now, Nathan has an extensive background in local government and the charity sector, alongside plenty of time spent at a grassroots level in local Labour parties, which I think means lots of time in school halls and on the Labour doorstep. And We've been sort of hanging out with him over the past week and we're going to give you all a chance to get to know him too. Now, before we start, as usual, I'd like to remind you not to forget to subscribe, rate and review so we can reach as many progressives as possible. Now, Nathan, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to finally be here because as I think hopefully the listeners will remember, I was originally announced back in May, but um, I had three months of uh, <laughs> notice period to, to, to work out at my last job. It was, uh, did kind of feel like it was never ending, but then finally a sort of deliverance day came and I started last Monday and it's really, like I said, it's really great to be here. Fantastic. So it's kind of like a mini version of Brexit then, except our except, country's except, <laughs> except we've, we've already gone past the equivalent of the 31st of October. So it's up for you to, it's not for me to say, but maybe you could tell the listeners whether the doom, the doom mongering was... <laughs> was correct or not? Uh, I can tell you we've got an excellent deal. Oh, so, she'll, she'll go far. <laughs> so Nathan, we're just here today because I know some people in the Progress family know you and some of them don't. And we thought it would be a great opportunity since we've spent the summer interviewing people from all walks of life. Um, I'm sure you heard Stefan's podcast with Daniel Levy, our podcast with Alf Dubs and with Paul Polsland to hear about various people and their activism and their backgrounds. So. Nathan, what's your background? Why politics? Why progress? So I don't think I can really uh, exactly pinpoint the exact moment I, I became interested in politics because I think like many other people you, uh, you see through the, uh, the recording studio, I grew up in an, quite a political background. My family was a very political family. Uh, my father um, was a long-standing activist and a trade union official for NatFi in Gwent. So I, I grew up in I know I don't sound it, but I grew up. <laughs> I grew up outside Pontypool in South Wales. So my dad was, uh, when I was born, a uh, quite committed um, activist. Probably much more to the left than I am. I think it's fair to say in the mid nineteen seventies. <laughs> uh, but then also, my mother's family had a, a much longer tradition of being involved with the Labour Party. So my great grandfather had marched up to London in one of the hunger strikes in the nineteen twenties, 
um, had worked down the mines, had worked in a, a number of jobs, had again been active in, in, in the NUM. And I believe had actually been the agent to Arthur Jenkins in the 19, either 29 or 1931 general elections. So obviously Arthur Jenkins was mm. the father of, of Roy Jenkins. And then my, that, that, that Len Jackson was his name. And he then became a councillor on what was the Pontypool Urban District Council. And in uh, the aftermath of the Second World War, he was the chair of the housing committee. And in, 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 in essence, had a, had a big role to play in, in the growth of council housing and, and the, the growth of Pontypool and then Cumbran, the new town to the south, after the, the Second World War. Now his son, his, uh, my, my aunt's youngest uncle, who became my dad's best friend, was also a councillor and, and for a period was the leader of the council on uh, what then became Torvine Council in the mid-1970s. So growing up, it was just the, the drum beats, the rhythm in the family, in the conversations uh, across the generations was uh, a very much a political one. And um, I'm old enough, obviously, to have grown up in the 1980s which is uh, is unusual listeners compared to everybody else in the office. Um, <laughs> you can't tell, I promise. Uh, no, I've no comment. Uh, so actually my first abiding memory is really Pontypool in that area of South Wales. Now, obviously Pontypool is not part of the coalfield. So it didn't f- like face the brunt of the closure of, of the mining industry in the 1980s, like other places to the west of us. But there was a palpable sense that Pontypool was a town that was being run down in the 1980s. And I think one of my first main memories was during the miners' strike in 1984-85 when my dad and my uncle were very much actively involved in uh, supporting the miners and fundraising. I think my first actual memory was going on a strike, uh, going on a march uh, in through Newport. I think it was the summer of 1984. And whilst walking down Stowe Hill, my dad introduced me to Michael Foote and I shook his hand and that was like a, a, a treasured moment. But apart from that, I think just growing up, in that kind of environment, the virulent sort of anti-Thatcherism that was going on in my household and was common currency, quite frankly, in the schoolyard and then actually growing up and getting older in secondary school, in those early conversations you have with some of your teachers, it was very much a community that was monocultural, I guess, in, in, in where its politics lay. Uh, so that's basically what I, what I take away from it massively. That and actually having a, a, a fascination and then being a massive fan of Spitting Image, uh, <laughs> being aware of those those puppets and the marionettes on the television, probably when I was too young to understand what they were saying. But um, the Chicken Song was definitely a, a favourite of mine in the 80s. And then actually, as I grew older, actually watching it itself. I think the other abiding memory, which is a, a less less of one for good, good cheer, uh, it was around the general election of 1992. Mm. So obviously, Neil Kinnock was the MP for Isloin, which is the neighbouring constituency to Torvine at home. And I went with a friend of my dad's uh, and successfully to try and get into uh, a rally they were holding in Blackwood in the run-up to the election. I mean, I remember it being, whether it's true or not, I remember the sun was shining and the level of enthusiasm was palpable that actually we were going to win. That Neil Kinnock, one of our own, a, a man who'd done a fantastic job of work in the 1980s, in dragging the Labour Party back into an electable position. And definitely coming from what was a working class or at least a historically working class community, having somebody who, who, who lived with and was very much aware of, of, of the pressures and the issues that working class communities have been going through throughout the 80s to get him into Downing Street was, was an amazing thing. Now, obviously, we lost. I was a paper boy at the time. And I remember I stayed up all night and it was just that sense of shock when I had to go around delivering the newspapers that, that following mm. morning that we hadn't, we hadn't won. So then at the earliest opportunity, well, not quite, I joined the Labour Party then in the beginning of 1994 uh, under John Smith. 
who I greatly admire and greatly admired at the time. I thought he was fantastic. And obviously the way in which those first two years of his leadership were going, again, it looked like we were onto a sure thing. Um, unfortunately, that, that wasn't to be. But then after Tony Blair came on board, I think I really got swept away with that sense of optimism yeah. that actually we could, we could achieve something, that Labour, Labour was the way forward. Okay, brilliant. You mentioned growing up in Pontypool and you've actually increased the uh, Welsh quota significantly in the office. And you mentioned quite a bit about how you came from a working class community and how important left-wing politics, in particular that strand of anti-Thatcherism was um, where you were growing up. Now, obviously, given that history, um, we've seen the Brexit referendum. Now, we can't talk about anything on this podcast without mentioning the B word, I'm sorry. And we basically saw Wales as a country vote for Farage and Johnson and actually buy into, it seemed, this narrative that was created by the Brexiteers about um, the potential for a left-wing exit and about the elites in Brussels. How did that make you feel? It's an interesting one. I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, actually, in specifically in the last six months. So, like I said, I grew up in Torvine. And unless my stats are failing me, Torvine registered the second highest leave vote in Wales. I think we just came in at just under 60% for, for mm. leave. Blinding went beat us, I think. Uh, they, they, they voted 62. Now, actually, in London, conversely, and I've been up here now for the best part of 20 years, and I've lived for the best part of 20 years in, in, in the Vauxhall constituency. So Vauxhall was, I, I, again, I could be corrected. I'm sure there's someone out there who will very much correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but Vauxhall was had the highest remain vote of any, or Lambeth rather, as a, as a council area, had the highest remain vote of any council area on mainland England. Mm-hmm. And actually, in fact, only Gibraltar had a higher remain vote. So we were, we were just under 79%. So actually, in the past couple of years, and I said, like I said, last months I've been thinking about it, there's a massive juxtaposition there between coming from what was essentially one of the most heavily Brexiteer parts of Wales, but actually living in the most heavily remain, uh, heavily remain parts of, of, of England. Am I surprised? No, actually. I think one, with hindsight, one of the big issues of the last 10 years since the crash, but also one of the, the, the problems, if you like, of our legacy uh, of, a, of a time in government, was I think we, uh, we failed to properly embed our reforms into, uh, into the psyche of, of, of the people who we were, we were looking to help. And we definitely didn't embed our public service reforms or indeed we didn't do enough to change the structural, um, the structure of, of, of local economies sufficiently to ensure that we had a lasting legacy. And I think we can, this is becoming palpably obvious. If you start thinking about the work the coalition did, mm. they dismantled pretty much all of the, that fantastic work that Gordon Brown did in the last uh, two, two to three years, saving the global economy. All that massive piece of um, in infrastructural investment that we planned, that was all that was all turned off. The taps were turned off on day one of the coalition. But actually, with austerity, with the way in which money has been ripped out and in large parts, hope has been ripped out of many of post-industrial and working class communities, I see the signs of that very evident when you go home in, in, in South Wales. Now, almost 10 years now down the line, the levels of, um, the, le- the, the amount of need, the levels of deprivation in some of the, the, the communities back at home in Torvine is, 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 is increasing also almost exponentially. I mean, a, a, another string to my bow, I'm, I'm a trustee of a small charity called Track 2. It's called The Really Amazing Charity. 
Uh, and apparently there was one already in existence. That's why it was track two when it was set up. Um, so track two is based in a place called Trevethin, which is on, on all the, 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 the official statistics is in the top 2% of most deprived communities across Wales. Um, that voted sort of overwhelmingly to leave. And there is an issue there, how sort of those communities, those very communities that are going to be most at risk potentially from Brexit and definitely from a hard Brexit were the ones that vote, were the ones, if they voted at all, who voted the most enthusiastically. And I can see over the last 10 years, that drumbeat has just increased. Now, the question I think we need, need to be asking is actually what we as progressives and what we as the Labour Party fundamentally can do to shift that, that viewpoint, but also what have we done and how have we failed in the past decade to bring those communities that we are, are essentially here to protect and to defend and to promote? What, uh, what can we do to those communities to bring them with us? Absolutely. And actually, you've led on to what my next area of question was going to be. Of course, we had the financial crash. Now, it seems years and years ago now, but in 2008, um, and obviously in many places before then, you saw social democracy sort of starting to flounder a little bit. Um, politics has been increasingly polarized. I think certainly in this country, we haven't really come to the end of austerity that started now over 10 years ago. Um, as progressives, do you think we found the answer to how we got to where we are now and why austerity and that sort of narrative has been so um, important and continuing really in our environment? I don't think we have an answer to it. Um, and this is not just a problem particular to the Labour Party. I think actually now if you're looking at the, the crisis of social democracy and uh, of other centre-left parties that has uh, spread across Europe, and apart from that brief shining moment of the Obama administration, <laughs> it's now obviously they've, they've jumped off the deep end in America seemingly as well. Um, so it is a, a global phenomenon. And I think in part, well, I don't know, I, I do think about this. And I wonder to what extent the recovery of a social democratic mindset when it comes will also be a global recovery and that uh, those parties and those thinkers uh, across the world of, of a similar political disposition can come together to actually uh, achieve something credible and long-lasting. Because I guess in an increasingly globalised environment, regardless of what happens with Brexit, it's that kind of international sort of philosophical and political currency that will will, will see us through. But in terms of us in the Labour Party, if I'm being honest, I've I've found the last 10 years pretty, pretty demoralising. Like I said, so I was working at the local government association at the time of the crash. I'd been, I, I was there for seven years. I, I was the head of the Labour Group office, which meant I spent a lot of time talking to local uh, government leaders of actually galvanising local councillors, the troops out there in the grassroots, but then also being one of the main points of, 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 of call and main sort of liaising figures between what was then government, uh, number 10, and um, Labour councillors out there. So if not quite at first hand, there was definitely had a, I, I had a, I had a seat in a row in, in the room when things were being done. And I think the phenomenal amount of hard work and energy that went into that, that last two years, the Brown administration to ensure that we didn't really fall off the cliff in a precipitous fashion, mm. I think w was fantastic, was amazing. And actually it would have been really interesting to see whether going back to what was essentially the, the beginnings of a, of a, of a great sort of almost Keynesian 
period of, of, of investment whilst, whilst the economy was tanking would have been a fun, was, would have been really good, like I, I mentioned earlier on. But I think as a party, after that, we really have, we've failed. We, 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 we funked or flunked the test, really. We haven't and, and still haven't done the put in the sufficient hard work to think about what renewal of a progressive, modern and relevant Labour Party uh, would look like in, in, in a different political mm. environment. I think post-2010, there were very many issues, um, very many things went on. I think we all got caught up in that 35% strategy, mm. a sort of endless triangulating on certain policy issues, having much more of a transactional approach. I think with hindsight, that was a mistake. Mm. And that we needed really to come to grips with the realities of being a progressive and social democratic party mm. in a time of, of, of greater austerity. And I think in large part, our failure to grasp that and our failure to grapple with some of the big issues seven, seven to eight years ago have led us in a way to, to some, some of the, um, some of the sticky situations, shall we say, that the Labour <laughs> Party is, finds itself in today. So obviously, Nathan, it feels like in the Labour Party, there's been a bit of a shift as well. So people like Chris Williamson and George Galloway um, been feeling more like our party is their home where sadly people like Luciana Berger don't. Um, how do we protect that sort of spectrum within the party? Actually, I knew Chris Williamson uh, 10 years ago. So when I was working at the LGA, like I mentioned earlier on, Chris was the leader of the Labour group and then the leader of uh, Derby City Council. And it's odd, I've reflected upon this quite, quite a lot in the last couple of years, that the man I knew 10 years ago isn't the man I see all over my social media feeds today. And I guess there's a case that he's become emblematic of, of, of the shift that's happened in the Labour Party, if you like, and which has been going on, happened after 2010. It's not all down to 2015, because I think from 2013, 2014 onwards, definitely where I'm an activist in, in, in Vauxhall, there were some figures who came back in from the cold, if you like, who'd, who'd left in the 80s because they found Neil Kinnock and then definitely Blair in the 90s, far too right wing for them. But it's an interesting question. I think if I'm feeling charitable, there's there's something in here about people feeling desperate and, and how that their levels of desperation have, have driven them to be, as they would say, so passionate in defense of the politics that they that they are in favor of and of, of Jeremy Corbyn as, as, as the man, uh, as the man. Um, I think and definitely if you think about it and you talk to them, there's an, an issue here about people need hope. And obviously in 2015 and again in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn spoke to, to a majority of members of the Labour Party and to much of the country in 2017. He spoke to them a message of hope. Now, it's a different question and it's, and it's not what I'm answering in my first week as to whether Jeremy Corbyn circa 2019 is still the repository of that hope or indeed has a message um, that actually could ever attune us to, to the party at large. But I, I think there is something we, we, we have to reflect upon about why in, the, in that period the Labour Party has become something different. But I think the thing we need to keep at the, for, the forefront of our minds, however much of a message of hope that Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters have, however much they are standing up for dispossessed, it does not um, excuse them for the, some of the behaviours that have been either brought in or sort of massively amplified in, in, in the past four years. And these need to be uh, addressed. We in the Labour Party should not be um, 
we should not be the home for misogynists or for bigots or for anti-Semites or for, for anybody else uh, expressing sort of aberrant, even pathological behaviours. I mean, uh, go back to the question you were asking about what can we do potentially on, on the progressive wing of the party. Yeah. I think if you think about where we have been for the last couple of years, we've actually got to come together and we've got to become more than just a safe space for those of us with uh, who we do our politics. I think we have to come together. We've got to grow our courage and galvanize ourselves, if you like, uh, to combat the, the drive that is here to delegitimize progressive thinking and progressive figures in the Labour Party. And basically to come together in a new display of solidarity to ensure that actually we're not going anywhere. The Labour Party remains the single most effective and important potential vehicle for transformational change in this country. I think we owe it to ourselves and we definitely owe it to those people uh, out there in the country to ensure that we we drag the Labour Party back and we get it back onto the right road to deliver the kind of progressive future I think that both you and I at least and hopefully many others out there um, uh, want. Perfect. Now we're going to take a short break while you're waiting. Please follow Nathan on Twitter. What's your handle? It's at Nathan Yowell. And as it is a peculiar surname, I'll spell that one for you if you want. So it's at Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N-Y-E-O-W-E-L-L. Lots of hot takes incoming. Uh, When we're back, we're going to talk about the future of progress. And also there'll be a fun quickfire round for all the family. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. So obviously, Nathan, progress was born partly out of the uh, campaign to change clause four of the Labour Party. And obviously, previously, the clause had been a commitment to nationalisation in sort of as an end rather than as a mean uh, means to a more just society. And it hadn't been changed since 1918. It was unchanged and we have the clause four we know and love today including a commitment to the many and not the few, and an assertion that we achieve more by our common endeavour than we achieve alone. So obviously the world is changing, progress is changing, the Labour Party is changing. How do we apply those clause four principles to the world as we see it today? We're looking at huge inequality of wealth and of income and between generations, a changing economy and obviously uh, the climate crisis that we like to mention a lot on this podcast. Just a small question. 
<laughs> I'm going to dodge it slightly, but I'm I'm going to set out where I think ever the politician. Oh, thank you very much. I actually do. I, do I want to be a politician? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, it's interesting you're talking there about that clause four moment in 1995 because I, I remember it actually quite well. Uh, I think I, vo- I voted in favour for the changes. Uh, everyone would be glad to know. But, <laughs> but, but that project, as it was as it was characterised, the project around Tony Blair and Gordon Brown that Peter Mandelson and others like Mo Molan were at the forefront of modernising the Labour Party, making it much more relevant um, for the majority of people in the UK in 1994. And that project is now 25 years old. And you're right, as we've said, the world has turned more than on more than one occasion in that period of time with the global crash and then actually the, the, the vicissitudes of the last 10 years. What I, think, what I think is needed, and actually this is where I think that we are really quite, really well placed to be thinking about is actually, if, if the original project is 25 years old, what is the project for the future? That actually progressives inside the Labour Party across the centre-left in British politics, full stop, what is our sense of mission in 2019? I mean, those of us who are here in 2019 have got through the past couple of years. There has to be more to membership of the Labour Party and our <laughs> campaigning spirit and our desire to change the country than just to see through and occupy the space we currently hold. So I think my challenge to the organisation and to anybody who is our supporter is actually how can we be at the forefront? How can we create, if you like, or co-create more importantly with our supporters and our members? How can we be here to co-create the vision for that modern, for that optimistic and positive and tolerant and progressive Britain that we want to see over the next over the next decade? And if we can start grappling with that, thinking about actually what the proper progressive internationalist response to climate change might be, thinking about actually what our policies are going to be in the next couple of years to either see us through Brexit or to maintain a decent relationship or indeed get to the point where we want to, uh, to, to go back in. How can we deal with other countries in, in, in a different set of circumstances if indeed Brexit goes through? Um, but actually, what is, that? what is that vision? What is the country that we want to build together? Crucially, why the Labour Party is the vehicle to create that change. And I think that's quite exciting. Because if you think about it, one thing that Jeremy Corbyn and members of of the hard left, they were never worried about having an alternative policy platform and 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 an alternative set of central organising principles to to New Labour or or, or to Neil Kinnock. And actually, I think earlier on, I was saying about this need for us to get out of the safe space I think we've ended up finding ourselves in. We need to be on the front, on the front, we need to be on the front foot. We need to be those happy warriors going out and making the case for the country and the party we want to and engaging with members and crucially with our neighbours, with the voters out there. Because I think the one thing really that has struck me since 2015 is the need for us to win. I was at an, uh, an event a couple of weeks ago. It was my first semi-formal outing, if you like, as the director. When Labour Together held um, an event about uh, 21st century Labour Party. And Neil Lawson, the, uh, the chair of Compass, uh, chaired the opening session, which was a discussion between me as the incoming director of Progress and Laura Parker as the national coordinator of Momentum. Uh, fun, fun, fun gig. <laughs> Actually, it went it, it it went quite well, and it was quite interesting. Neil's first question, and he told me that I had to answer it, was what was the most positive thing that I thought had happened to me um, in the Labour Party 
since Jeremy Corbyn was elected. Now I got I got I got some friends telling me off on the live feed afterwards because I, I was stroking my chin for a period of time, trying to think desperately on my feet what I thought. But actually, the most important thing I, 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 that's happened to me since Corbyn came in, it really has given me an opportunity to think, and it's to think what my politics are, and to think what the reasons I'm here for are. And it's not just to be on the back foot. It's not just to be defensive, uh, although there's a large part there because it's it's my friends and my comrades and my neighbours who in some cases have been under sort of egregious attack from so-called comrades. But it's actually, we have to think differently and much more positively. And I, I genuinely do think, although it takes it will take an awful lot of hard work, the future is ours if we can come together and organise ourselves together to think about what that vision might be, to think about what principles underpin that vision, what policies we would want to bring about at local, at devolved and at national level, and actually to bring back that bit of confidence and to provide the inspiration for very many of our friends and members across the country. And then to whom I just say, please get stuck in. We basically need our members. We need our members basically to give us sustenance to ensure that we can be the organization that we need to be, to be there trying to craft and and, and shape the future. Um. Yeah, and thinking a little bit more closely to home, I know you've just touched on it, uh, but we're here in our lovingly named podcast bunker. It's really not glamorous, I can assure you. Um, yeah. She's, uh, Hannah's not wrong. <laughs> Obviously, you've just taken over the helm of progress. What role do you see progress having in this renewal and this forward-thinking, progressive organisation within the Labour Party? Oh, a crucial role. I mean, one one of the something I've taken great comfort and great strength from actually in the past couple of months is the the amount of goodwill um, and, and the positive messages I've received uh, since since my announcement of coming here. And obviously, it's 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 a daunting prospect. We're not. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. The progressive wing of the Labour Party is not in the ascendancy, right? That, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying anything people don't know. And actually, the challenge is to make us relevant again to make us relevant at a time when we should be relevant, when progressive social democratic um, politics actually should, or at least could have, have the answer to some of the questions that our, that our, that our friends and neighbours and voters are desperately crying out, crying out for. I think we could have a crucial role to play, basically, in getting members stuck in, to giving members of the party and our supporters of progress um, an opportunity to think they are part of a, of a much greater mission that is actually is committed to turning the Labour Party back into that that credible vehicle I mentioned earlier on. I think I think it's really exciting. Like I said, it is daunting, um, and we we definitely don't have answers for everything. But I th- <laughs> but I think actually we we need to bottle actually some of the optimism that potentially is there to see us through the next couple of months, to see us through those triggers, to see us through the general election if if it, if it comes, and to be campaigning and organising for for progressive principles and for progressive politicians. So we end up at some point, hopefully in the near future, with a credible progressive platform on which uh, the Labour Party can stand again. Fantastic. Yeah, and it struck me, I think, a little bit earlier on, you said Labour activists shouldn't just be about occupying the space that we currently have. Actually, we should be about growing the space. And that's very much how I and I know everyone else in the office sees progress. It's about growing that space and speaking to new people. Yeah, completely. Um, and now for the fun bit, we've got <laughs> some quick fire questions. So you are a 
benevolent, apparently, dictator for a day, so you don't have very much time. Now, your staff, so me, uh, have compiled some executive decisions for you to make before your day is up. What do you do? One, do you permanently dock the England rugby team 20 points in every six nations from now until 2050? Um, I would do, but more importantly, I would dock them like 20 points for the forthcoming World Cup. Because obviously as a proud Welshman and, and the team is now number one in the Rugby World Cup rankings, um, I, 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 I can't support England ever, I'm afraid. Fair enough. Do you ban people from saying their hobbies include food in their dating profiles unless they can actually cook? Yes. Wow, that's going to exclude a lot of people. Um, you get one state visit. Where do you go? Um, Austria. Why Austria? Well, because as an eight-year-old, I developed <laughs> I developed a fascination with the Habsburg Empire and I've never <laughs> been to Vienna, so I'd like to go and look uh, to see where the, the Habsburgs did their thing. Fair enough. Uh, you get to commission one statue for Parliament Square. Who is it? Well, it's not a Habsburg emperor, you'll be glad to know. Um, I think Barbara Castle. Actually... Somebody who I had uh, enormous respect for, uh, really interesting growing up. If, if kids, if you can find copies of both of her uh, diaries, go and go and read them. I think she's a she's a shining example, actually, of, of what the Labour movement can achieve. And I think she was a fantastic, fantastic role model for men and women across the party. And she uh, she's great. Um, Barbara Castle, loved by actually plenty of people in Progress. She's also a favourite of Progress Chair Ali McGovern, who recommended that book to me a couple of months ago. Yeah, there we go. Um, now Downing Street has a secret time machine. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, that they've managed to keep secret, and you get to kill one hour of your day to go back in time. When do you go to? That's a very challenging, stroke peculiar question to ask. <laughs> um, I didn't write these. I promise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so I'm, I, like I said, I, I was a peculiar little eight-year-old who got into Austrian, Austrian Central European history. I ended up doing history at university. So history is my thing. So actually, this has got nothing to do with politics, I think, or my political job at the moment. I would like to go back, I think, to 1789. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily to the Paris of the French Revolution, but to London and to the House of Commons. And actually, at that moment when the, the debate mm. kicked in, actually, about between, between the Whigs and the Tories and how Britain, as a representative democracy, as a constitutional monarchy, dealt with what they saw was the terror of the French Revolution. I mean, you would expect this of a progress director, I guess. I've, I've got a, a romantic attachment to the late 18th century, early 19th century Whig party. And I think, <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, to go over there and, and then to get on the gambling tables at Devonshire House with the Duchess of Devonshire maybe one night <laughs> after a raucous parliamentary debate would, uh, would be a very interesting evening. Uh, I think mine would be the same, but I think I'd probably want to be in Paris. Yeah, but if Lots I... Lots of guillotining. I, but come on, the director of progress might get his head chopped off in Paris. <laughs> you, know, you, you never know which sounds Collot would be after I mean, me. That's a certainty. Uh, last one. And after all that, there's still some time to pass one bill without having to go through Parliament and with as much money as you could possibly want. What law are you going to pass? Um, serious, serious one. Uh, meaningful devolution. Mm. I think growing up in Wales, um, now becoming a, a firm believer in, in, in the Welsh Assembly and as much as I am the Scottish Parliament, but also coming through the roots of the LJ and, and local government. I think the UK state is far too centralised. Um, the last 10 years have taught us that central decisions don't necessarily work at a time of, of, of increasing and expanding need for many people in the country. And that quite frankly, the way that Whitehall is built, 
people are pressing buttons and nothing's happening. So if there was a bill I could pass, it would be for much more meaningful forms of devolution, uh, which actually would not just meaning councils on the ground doing everything in a, in, a, in a reflection of how rights law currently exists, but actually trying to think outside the box about much more meaningful and practical engagement between uh, the public sector, the private sector, and crucially the charitable and social sectors locally, so they could actually assess the need, plan the, the right action that would need to, to address that need, and then actually come together with really kind of radical and different ways to bring the communities with them to address the needs and the aspirations of the communities they're there to serve. Fantastic. And you've had a long and colourful career so far. So what's the best piece of advice you've received that stayed with you? Probably, because I think lots of jobs I've been in have been about collective effort, and it's basically working as a team. It's actually doing your best to keep as many people on board uh, as possible, because um, it's all about the team. It's not about the individual. Mm. And as progress director, taking on a very challenging job that at times can seem a little bit depressing and bleak, what thing makes you stay hopeful? prolonged silence from me on that one um, <laughs> <laughs> a nice bit of time my to myself <laughs> actually yeah the older i get and i am by far the oldest person in the office listeners as i approach the the venerable age of 43 in two months time time to myself to, to think and reflect actually is is a good thing and it does make me realize that actually life is tough the world is not a great place at the moment uh, but actually by coming together in organizations like Progress or your local labor parties or your, your local community group, however you choose to spend your time. It's actually that human nature and my relationships with my friends are positive and they are hopeful and that, that there will always be a better tomorrow. It might take us a while to get there and God knows what, what, what we might have to go through to get there. But actually I think it's that it's, it's, it's a, it's an extension of what you said. My, my, um, the advice would be it's, working together, being with my friends, being with my comrades and knowing that actually if we've got the right mission, we'll get there in the end. Well, that's a very cheery note to leave us all on. Thank you very much, Nathan. And thank you for listening. We will be back after the bank holiday. So sit tight till then. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review. It's always much appreciated. Bye. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton mm-hmm.